We're now starting the first epistle of Timothy. We'll spend a little time here before we go into the verses. Paul is sending this epistle or letter to Timothy. It is about 65 AD. Ephesus, where Timothy was ministering. Paul had ministered there as an apostle, and he had to go. Some believe he was going into prison at this time, but he was doing something else. And the main theme of the epistle was sound doctrine or sound teaching. When people hear the word doctrine, they think of theology. It simply means teaching. So we can use sound based on the basic word of God and what is true. Unsound would be heresy and false teaching, adding or taking from the intent of the scripture, which is often done by false shepherds. So the main theme is sound teaching, which is to lead to godliness and practical holiness or righteousness. All scriptural teaching or doctrine is mainly not to impart knowledge. That's just the basics. Knowledge is good, but in itself, it doesn't do anything. You have to work with it or submit to it, or it's simply mental assent of beliefs that most professing Christians in the world have. Out of the two billion professing Christians, very few of them are real Christians, but they have mental assent of Christianity certain teachings and doctrines. They believe Jesus is the Lord. They believe he died and resurrected. They believe he's their Lord, but he's not because they do not follow him. They're not regenerated. The Spirit's not leading them. They're doing their own thing, but having a little religion and tradition on the side. And Jesus's judgment to them when they're called to judgment will be, I never knew you. He never recognized them, even though they were saying, Lord, Lord. So the devils recognize who God is. They do not wish to submit to him, uh, but they have to obey him in their perverse wickedness. They're overruled by him and controlled, but it's not by a willing choice, okay? So all scriptural teaching and doctrine is not mainly just to give knowledge, but that which leads to practical holiness. So teaching of the Bible is for that reason. Many people study the scripture so they will know. Many of the Corinthians were glorying in their knowledge, but they missed the practical Christianity. and Paul was not pleased with them. Knowledge puffs up. It makes a person proud. If you truly understood scripture, it would humble you would not make you proud if the Spirit of the Lord is instructing and moving in a person. So the purpose of all scriptural teaching, all of it is given by inspiration by God, is for instruction in righteousness, in righteousness, not in the knowledge about righteousness. It's how to live pure, holy, and righteous in God's way, in the way he wants it done. He said, be ye perfect, Jesus said, as your Father in heaven. Be complete. Be in him what he wants you to be. So that's his intention. Any other 
studying of scripture, seminaries, knowledge, studying Greek and Hebrew has no purpose if the person is not going to submit to the Lord and follow him. It's better that they not do it because there'll be more knowledge of judgment that'll come under them. God will hold them accountable for they seem to know more, but they do little. So he will hold people accountable for the light and the truth they have or whether they obey it or not. This is what he does, being all-seeing, all-knowing, and perfect justice and holiness. Okay. So James would be in harmony with Paul's view, faith without works is dead or vain. So he would agree with Paul if it is not godly teaching, sound teaching that leads to practical living, then it's vain, it's dead, doesn't profit anything, okay? So the Lord, Lord, it was empty. The masses of professing Christians will say, Lord, Lord, and he will say, I never knew you, you cursed of my father, you workers of lawlessness. They weren't workers of righteousness and holiness, and following the Lord, they lived their own selfish lives, and they thought by mixing a little religion with it, it would get them into heaven, but they will find out it will not, okay? So works, when he's talking about James, the same as Paul, we're talking about spiritual works. Spiritual works is fruit and obedience. So without that, there is no true faith, and the faith is vain or dead. It means it's a merely talking expression. As Jesus told the Jews often under the Old Covenant when they were rebellious, you honor me with your lips, but your heart's far from me. So they would go through the ceremony and the praise and singing songs. And they had beautiful choirs and singing. And he said, I detest it. I despise your instruments and your singing because their heart wasn't right. He didn't approve of it. And that's what we have today in a lot of these mass church meetings. Everything's based on beautiful music to stir people's emotions. But as far as the Lord is concerned, he detests it because it comes from a wicked, selfish heart and not from the spirit in a person helping them live righteously. Okay? So we see then that Spiritual works is fruit and obedience. You cannot separate them. That's what they, and that's what James was talking about. He wasn't talking about Catholic works, uh, works of the Pharisees, man working to please God on his own terms. He's talking about spiritual works, the fruit of coming and staying in Christ, the branch in Christ that's been born again, that's been regenerated, must bear fruit. If he he draws from the vine, he draws and the vine gives him the life with his consent to bear fruit. He cannot bear fruit without Christ, and Christ does not bear fruit without the branch yielding to him. It's a very simple matter. So this is the spiritual works that James talking about. He says, I'll show you by my works what my faith is, how I believe. He emphasized the outcome of what you believe. So you can believe anything you want mentally. It doesn't prove anything. Mental assent doesn't prove anything unless there's a corresponding action. We'll see later 
Faith is to be active. It is not a passive mental belief. At least saving faith is not. Okay? So without obedience to Christ's commands and will, one does not have Christ as Lord. Well, that nullifies most professing Christians. Jesus said, why call me Lord, Lord, if you do not do what I tell you? The word can translate it to, if you do not work out what I tell you, if you don't put it into action. That's the work, the action. You begin to obey it and put it into practice. And that's why we have so many scriptures by Paul and the apostles saying, do this and don't do that. Because a man under salvation, he still has a separate spirit. But if he yields to the Lord and is yoked with him, then he can do certain things that God is pleased with. If he does not have the spirit of Christ, he cannot please God spiritually. He has no basis. There's no help. It takes the Lord in the person to change and to accomplish spiritual things. As Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing, nothing spiritual, nothing avails in the spirit realm of any good unless it's done in Christ with Christ's help. So the Holy Spirit is Christ's spirit, and he comes alongside in us and helps us do the will of God. He does not do it himself. He does it in us. Again, there must be the unity. We must consent to walk with him and be yoked with him. And we can stop and we can go back if we choose to. See, that will is never taken away. Man's will, when he's born again and saved, he has a new spirit, but that spirit can disobey if it doesn't stay with Christ. It can do what it pleases, as the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. No matter how God moves upon them, they do not have to prophesy. They can be moved on, and they can refuse to do it, or they can adjust the timing. They're not parrots. They're not dictating robots. They consider what they are given, and they have to judge it to make sure it comes from the Lord, because the devil's a good imitator. And there's many false things. And that's why when Paul said, let the prophets, the New Testament prophets, when they speak to the whole gathering of the body or the home churches, they be basically let them do it two and three and let the others judge. The other prophets were to discern uh, whether this true prophet gives something off a little bit. Maybe the, the devil slips something in there into his human mind and he didn't catch it, but then catch it, and they were to correct it and give instruction. They were not to be gullible and believe everything that they were heard. And John said the same thing. Many false prophets have gone into the world, and we have to watch out and not be deceived by them. Test the Spirit, he said, and prove if they're from the Lord. And if they're not, we reject it, and we discipline, or we cast out the false prophet if that's his ministry. But even true prophets can make mistakes on delivery and slip up on things. So any human is subject to failure because the Lord does not override him. He has to, to be spiritual and bear fruit 
the prophet and every Christian has to consent willingly to the will of the Father. He does not override them. Demons like to possess and control. People under demonic powers into fortune-telling and trances and mysticism, often they can't remember what they did because the Spirit controlled them. They Once they've given themselves to this Spirit, it tells them to do things and stuff, and often they don't remember, but they're held accountable. God holds them accountable. And so the prophet or the spiritual minister of the Lord Jesus, he's held accountable for everything he does in the spirit realm. His teaching, his ministry, uh, he's held accountable. And therefore, God can bring him into judgment for his works. Later on, his works will be discovered if they're gold and silver and precious stones of spiritual value, or whether they are hay and straw and something that will be burned up and has no value. So even the Christian's actions will be judged by motive and intent, how much of it was mixed with God and how much we did it on our own. Some people, Christians, give certain things and they do it in a group because they want to be seen. And as Jesus told the Pharisees, then you have your reward. You got what you wanted. You wanted the praise of people. But for the Christian, he will be punished for it, and he'll lose things in this life, and he'll lose rewards if he makes it in the next. So we got to see we are responsible for everything we do, and therefore we can be judged. People and children cannot be brought into that kind of judgment because they don't have the capability to judge. Their brain doesn't function that way. It's those who have been given truths and have truths and reject the truth that will be called into the strict judgments, okay? So the Lord said, you know, why do you call me Lord if you're not going to obey me? He was teaching and telling those who profess to be believers and disciples, some of them didn't stay with him too long. Because he is not Lord if he is not obeyed and followed. I've talked to many people in the past when I was counseling. Well, I believe in the Lord and he's my savior. I'm just not following him. And I would upset them. And I'd say, because he's not your Lord. Oh, they get so upset. They love to prove by the twisting of scriptures. Oh, I'm saved. He's just not on the throne of my life. I said, because he's not Lord. You're deceived. You've been believing a lying gospel. So Paul and the apostles, they didn't mince words with people. They didn't say, oh, yeah, you believed 10 years ago when the Lord appeared to you, so you must be a Christian. If you weren't continuing in the Lord, they'd have rejected that. They didn't care about your past experience. It's how are you living in the present is how the Lord's going to deal with people. Okay? So Paul will exhort Timothy as to his ministry and exhort him to maintain purity of the gospel as he comes against and refutes false teachers. So among the gatherings, there will be false ones and spots that come in, spots in your love feasts, as Jude and Peter would call them. They'll mix in there like we have today. Of course, today there's more false Christians in the churches than true Christians. Back then, that was reversed, okay? And so he will answer also things 
concerning church matters and problems at Ephesus. So Timothy is going to take over as the overseer, basically, while Paul is absent. Now into verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ, who is our hope. Paul lets us know he is an apostle, a messenger called by God Almighty. The command by God, our Savior. And we'll see it came through Jesus also. We'll see the unity of the what we call the Godhead, the Trinity, in these things. They do not work separately. So it was Jesus who appeared to him, the Savior, okay? The God is, is unity in all spiritual things. We keep reminding ourselves. Yet he says, Jesus, or Jesus Christ, our hope. Of course, God is our hope. All through the Psalms, we'll see many verses about God being our hope. He is our hope. Of him being our Savior. He is our Savior, okay? So we'll go to... Acts right now briefly and look at the call of Paul uh, real briefly. Acts 26. Let's start at verse 14. We'll go to 18. And when we had fallen to the ground, the vision he had seen, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. He's bringing Paul under, and Paul doesn't know it. Paul is trying to gather Christians to have them stoned to death, and he considers the Christian sect false. He considers Christ a false prophet, and he's got letters from the high priest to go gather them. They were a part of the Jewish nation, and they considered them a sect, a perversion. And under the law, if it was true, if they were blasphemers and false, they could be put to death. So he's doing this, but the Lord's disturbing his conscience and bothering him, and he don't know what's going on, because he says, it's hard for you to fight against me. God's slowly starting to subdue him. Christ is. And so he says, well, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's interesting here, he doesn't say the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, because Paul sees Jesus as just a man, and Paul thinks he's a false prophet. So Jesus is going to make it plain that I am a man you are persecuting. But he's going to see real briefly that he is the Lord Christ also. He's getting Paul's attention. Okay, and he said, and who are you, Lord? Often they addressed any supernatural visited angels as Lord or Master. And so when he's saying Lord here, he's not believing that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior. He hasn't come to that yet. Okay, and he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. People don't understand the great judgments of the world When God separates the goats, the sinner, from the sheep, those who are godly, the main basics is not only their works and actions, but what they did with Jesus' people, how they helped or hindered them. 
This is the main form of judgment. When God pours out his wrath during the tribulation period, the main reason is because they persecuted the saints, the Christians, during that time. And he's going to pour out his wrath because they did that. Why? Because those who persecute the Lord's children persecute him. And so Jesus is aligning himself and saying, you persecute me. When you are abusing and persecuting and putting to death of these Christians, it's me you're after. And that's how God looks at it. And that's how he's going to judge it at the final judgments, okay? But he said, rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and witness both of the things which you have seen and the things which you will see or which I will reveal. He was constantly later after this call getting revelation. He got revelation later on and that the 12 didn't get. He said, I was given more abundant, but he was given more grace. And he was given a stake in the flesh. You don't hear of the other apostles given that. He was given such extraordinary things. He had to be kept humble and that he would not yield to pride and arrogance because of what was being given him. He understood that and finally dealt with it. He said, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I will send you. He's already telling them you're going to have troubles because you're going to have to be delivered. He was going to be persecuted, stoned, shipwrecked. This was probably the stake in the flesh was mainly an extraordinary demonic spirit that would attack him, and he would have to totally rely on the Lord to get a deliverance from this. And he wanted it to be removed, but the Lord said, my grace, my strength is enough. It was to keep him from being arrogant and lifted up in pride for the abundance of revelations he was getting from God, okay? And then in 18, I will send you to them, and what is you going to do? You're going to preach and teach the gospel, and what are you going to do? Turn them from darkness, that's repentance, and from the power of Satan, and turn them to God, that's faith in God, toward God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The inheritance in the future, heaven, eternal life, permanent fixture in heaven, not here on earth. We have eternal life as we stay with Christ. Salvation is not a gift that separated from Christ. You only have salvation as you stay in the Lord. When you cease to do that, the Father cuts the branch off and casts it aside. It no longer has eternal life. The life of the vine no longer moves through it. That's what can happen in this life. That's why people can apostate. That's why people can backslid. They still have a will. And they can be lured into the world by many devices and we are having a warfare, a pilgrim, it's a race. And that is the probation that we're under. And we have to be faithful to the end to inherit eternal life in heaven. Okay, so we see that he said, God commanded me. And here we see the God, it was Jesus Christ commanded him. The Father is the Savior. 
Jesus is the Savior. They work in perfect unity, only separated at times to express certain works and things that they do. Again, as we've talked about different facets of a diamond, it's still the same diamond, but it has many facets. So God has facets. He's just. He's holy. He's merciful. He's a God of wrath. He hates wickedness. And Psalm says he despises and hates the wicked soul of a violent person and a murderer. So when people reject his goodness and kindness, he hates them. People say, oh, he, he don't hate the sinner. He just hates No, Psalm says he hates them. And when he throws them into the lake of fire, his wrath, his hatred and anger will be on them continually forever. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a God of wrath. Said so much of the gospel has been perverted. Uh huh. Paul said, "Let them persecute you as a Christian." He didn't say forgive them. They cannot forgive the wicked people if God does not forgive them. We're to forgive Christians, and we can forgive the best of our ability, even sinners that apologize or repent. But it's ultimately God's choice. And he cannot forgive if they do not come to Christ. They will not be forgiven. And Paul says something interesting. He said, don't take vengeance on them. He said, give place to wrath, for God says, I will repay. Does it sound like God's forgiving them for what they're doing? They're storing up wrath. He said, and I will repay them. I will pull out my vengeance on the day of judgment. If they do not turn to the Lord, Every idle word of the wicked person, they will be judged for and punished. As every Christian that follows the Lord, the least they do, giving a cup of cool water to someone or a greeting, he said they will not lose their reward. So that's the justice of God. He sees all, he rewards and punishes all that is not in Christ. Okay, when the books are open, the sinner will be judged by the books, by their actions. Some will get greater punishments than others. But if they're not in the other book, the book of life, they will be punished in hell, whatever their status. Some will receive great punishments like Stalin and Mao and Hitler. And people, you can imagine they're going to get a, a real good punishment for being responsible for the lives of millions of people. Where the normal sinner just finds his own life and lives for pleasure in himself, he may be in the lower half, but he's still going to be punished, everlasting punishment. So people need to remember this. God sees all, does not forget anything. Sees all, all the time. He says he sees everything under the heavens. Everything, okay? So verse 2, now he says, To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul considers Timothy his spiritual son. He was very close to him. And he did his conversion. He actually later on prophesied over him by the spirit of what ministries he was going to do. So he was very close to Timothy, okay? He pronounces something, a blessing. He says, grace, mercy, and peace that comes from God the Father and Jesus Christ the Lord. So when we think of grace here, we see it in so many of the introductions and conclusions of the epistles. May the grace of God be with you. 
grace, it's favor. It's unmerited favor, but most people make it that and that alone. That is not all it is. That kind of grace is from God's side. He can be good to the evil and gracious to the evil and unthankful. He can put off judgment. By God not judging people for their wicked sins immediately and sending them to hell, which he has a right to do in justice, he's being gracious to them. They're storing up wrath. He lets them live out their life, basically. Wicked people live many years, and the devil inspires them, and God could strike them dead at any time. But he's chosen to do it a different way. But at times, he can refuse grace and judge a person, and it has other reasons. It may be to do with blocking Christian ministry or afflicting too much Christians that are being tested. He can do this. He's not bound. But he can be gracious to anyone. That's a side of God's nature. But the other side is he's just. So if God extends great grace or grace to people, he has to judge them for rejecting it. So people that are given more and are not accountable and do what they're told, they can be punished more. God is fair in all of his dealings. So when people think, oh, I'm chosen and I'm the elect, then you better stay faithful because you're going to a greater hell than a normal sinner. Peter said it's better not to have known the way of righteousness than to depart from it, from the Holy Commandment. He's saying it's better that you never got saved if you turn your back on the Lord. Your punishment will be greater than the average sinner because you were given grace You trampled Christ's blood twice. You insulted him. You crucified him twice. You were given great light and opportunities. And Hebrews warns of that. There's some that get to the place that repentance is impossible. The hardness of their heart and God's hardening them. He did that to King Saul. He did that to Pharaoh. He did that to certain kings and backsliders. He said, that's enough. And he did not show mercy or grace anymore. And they will answer for a lot. So that's the basic beginning when we think of God's favor. But God can be gracious, like I say, to whom he pleases. But justice will fall on those who reject any level of grace. Okay, But grace for the Christian is basically strength and ability to do something. We're given strength. It's just not a word, unmerited favor. If we're in the Lord, we are favored by him. And we get that because of what Jesus Christ did and merited. So he transfers that. So that's why he can reward the Christian. Anything he does in unity with Christ, we share in the reward. Anything done that Christ isn't in, is wood, hay, and stubble. There's no spiritual reward for it. There's a mixture there. So we have to understand that. But it's grace for the Christian is strength and ability and aid that he gives us. So that's what he's, he's telling Timothy, okay? So grace is to help him and give us the ability to walk with him and do his will, okay? And mercy, people forget sometimes mercy as a whole is dependent on acknowledgement of sin and repentance 
for anyone. So mercy often in the Old Testament is dependent on acknowledging your sin, confessing it, and forsaking it. Scripture says, he that confesses and forsakes his sin shall find mercy. So it's based on the person's actions that God can withhold mercy or give mercy. So it's slightly different from grace. But overall, to the Jew and to the Christian, those who refuse to be merciful, God said he will not be merciful toward them. Those who are too harsh and hard, God said, I'll be the same way with them. See, he's looking at their actions. And mercy must be based on repentance, acknowledgement of your faults, and the willingness to repent, to change. See, many people confess their sins all the time, but they don't stop them. So they do not receive mercy or grace. They receive a false gospel, a greasy grace, once saved, always saved gospel that leads them to hell, see, because they have no spiritual works. They don't rely on the Lord, and they don't forsake their sins. They think God's going to give them grace and mercy while they continue in their sins and their willful rebellion. That's not going to happen. And so then we come to peace. Peace is a part of righteousness and joy. You cannot have one without the other. A lot of people think they can. I have peace with God because I'm saved. And then they're living in gross sin. They have false peace. It cannot be the peace of God. For the wicked have no peace. And peace is God's gift to them. It's his presence, making them assured that they're in right standing with him. That's what the peace of God does. The peace they get is a false peace, a lying peace. Uh-huh. So what we see is peace is a part of the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. And you can reverse them. So if people say they have peace while practicing gross sin, they're a liar. They got an imitation and they're deceived. I've heard people tell me, well, at least I'm saved. I know I'm not walking with the Lord. I said, well, you've been given a lying spirit. So you've been lied to by false shepherds and you think you're saved and you have salvation because it's all God's grace and I don't have to do anything. So you continue in your gross sins. You have a false knowledge of God's word, and you will stand speechless at God's judgment when you're cast into the lake of fire. Then you will find out that you didn't have the peace of God. You had an imitation, okay? So there is false peace. Now, joy, basically, we could call it a spiritual happiness from God, and it's given to the Christian under all circumstance. It can be given during persecution, sorrow, problems, See, many people that are immature and baby Christian, they think they're supposed to be bubbly joyful all the time and feel good. And as soon as they have a problem and they don't, they begin to think, oh, have I backslidden? No, see, they're basing things on their human emotions that are up and down like a roller coaster. It has nothing to do with God's joy. Joy is close to peace. It gives people the right and the knowledge that no matter what's going on, God is with me. God overrides and controls. Uh, none of these things can happen, even the testing and the great sorrows, without God's permission. So it gives us that peace and happiness that he's doing his will, and he's perfecting us and maturing us. 
Okay. And that's why Paul had so many sufferings. But again, he'd always say rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. And he was one that could tell you about sorrows and joy. So you can have sorrow and unhappiness and yet joy from the spiritual side. Okay, then we get, as we've said before, worldly happiness depends on what happens, finding what you want, your desires being granted, self-gratification. And Jesus called this finding one's life. So if you're happy in this world all the time and nothing bothers you, you found your life. And that's nice for this life. Pleasures of sin for a season. Self-gratification, living for your own purposes and happiness. Well, it can be done for a short time. But it said, Jesus said, but if you find your life, he said, you'll lose it eternally. The life is meant to be served and serve God in Christ. And the life that doesn't do that, they find their life. Oh, they're wealthy people, happy people. Oh, they have human problems. But many of them will tell you at the end of their life, oh, I have a happy life. I lived a good life. Everything's well until they stand in judgment. Then they go realize how much they lost. Okay? So happiness depends on outward happenings. So even Christians can deal in that context. We get our prayers answered. We have certain events, and we're happy for the moment, but it changes. Let's go ahead and take a break here.